Welcome to Room 106. I'm Richard Garlick from Planning Magazine. And this is a bonus edition, taking a deep dive into the amendments to the Leveling Up and Regeneration Bill agreed just before Christmas. I'm joined in Room 106 by three of Planning's regular contributors. David Blackman, who's been looking at the amendments related to street votes and self-build projects. Hello, David. Uh, Hello, Richard. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Joey Gardner, who's been studying, among other things, the measures intended to speed the build-out of planning permissions. Hi, Joey. Hi, Richard. Hello. And Ben Cochin, who's been examining the amendments intended to enable councils to benefit financially from allocating land for development. Hi, Ben. Uh, Hi, Richard. Thank you all very much for joining us. Um, You've all been looking at uh, these different topics as part of analysis pieces that you've been uh, writing for uh, for planning over the last couple of weeks, and which, of course, people can uh, read in full on planningresource.co.uk. But can I start by turning to you, Joey, and asking you to talk a bit about what these uh, agreed amendments to the bill propose in terms of how the government believes they're going to speed the build out of planning permissions well effectively richard there are two measures which got which got added to the leveling up and regeneration bill one is primarily really an administrative measure and that is one to require progress reports on all permissions effectively these these would be annual progress reports from developers on the build out rate and the extent of build out against the permission as the development goes forward and the second addition to the bill is potentially a more substantial addition which is one that enables councils to decline to determine an application made if and when a previous application has either not been built out or if build-out has been, in the view of the local authority, uh, unreasonably slow. Okay, so certainly the latter, quite a significant power for authorities. Can you explain for both of these how each of them would change the system? Well, I think, as I said, the former effectively, I think, is is essentially an administrative action. I don't think the change is really significant. I mean, it's a bureaucratic burden for a developer, but I don't think it effectively hugely changes the system. It provides more information and potentially a greater degree of transparency for the local authority, although we don't know what the publication requirements of this information will be. So wouldn't necessarily whether the um, public would get to see this information because that would be determined by the regulations. In terms of the second measure, again, it would change it just simply in terms of bringing in this new power, which would allow the local authority to decline to determine this application. I mean, one of the significant parts about this is, is of course, usually one of the principles of the planning system is that it runs with the land rather than with an application. But the point of this amendment is that you're you're allowing a local authority to decline to determine an application on the basis of the identity of a developer and their actions on a different separate permission that you've you've granted so you're effectively determining an application on the basis of something that they've done somewhere else which is uh, to do with their behavior as an organization 
nothing really to do with the land use of the actual site itself, which uh, for some people would go against one of the more fundamental principles of the planning system. What are people saying the practical implications of that might be? Well, I think the practical implications are, I have to say, from both the local authority and the developer side, I found it quite hard to find supporters of the latter measure, because I think from the local authority side, there was scepticism as to really what the circumstances would be, where it would actually be in a local authority's interest to actually carry out such a measure and whether it would be possible to stop a a developer from simply gaming the system. And if a developer had actually land banked on on a separate application, wouldn't they just bring forward a different application under a a different business name and therefore just evade this particular regulation? Wouldn't it be simple for them to do that? And also, really, at the end of the day, would you not just be cutting your nose off to spite your face by refusing a planning application if the ultimate aim is to deliver more housing? So there was scepticism from the local authority side as to the extent to which it would work. But Also, from the applicant side, a lot of concern about this kind of breach of the principle, as they would see it, of the plan system. And I think a lot of concern as to what the implications would be for development and for the additional risk that this would put on bringing forward development, and particularly the additional risk of bringing forward more complicated sites, the kind of sites such as brownfield schemes that might be subject to delay and difficulties in delivery, you know, those kind of sites are actually probably local authorities would be the keenest to see delivered, but are probably likely to be the most likely to be subject to delays because they would have infrastructure requirements, they would potentially need remediation, etc. Actually, this might just deter developers from, from taking on those kind of developments if they thought that there was a risk that they in future might be barred from gaining permission on on other sites if they if they ran into problems on this one what about the uh, the, the other proposal the progress reports are, are the practical implications of that that have been suggested by people looking at the proposed change there weren't significant practical implications raised i think the um the kind of bureaucratic burden you know even from the developer side there wasn't a significant concern about that i mean it was raised by a couple of people but I don't think people think it's going to be an enormous burden. I think one of the senses is that perhaps the point of that amendment would be that that information would be potentially used to provide the evidence on which the other measure is based. So if if I'm a local authority carrying out this decision to determine an application, I need to be able to evidence the fact that a previous application has been built out unreasonably slowly. Therefore, I need some evidence on which to base that. And perhaps that these annual progress reports on permissions, therefore, is the evidence base on which I can assert that information. So these are kind of two of a piece. Okay, well, thanks very much, Joey. I mean, and certainly combined, they they potentially quite a radical change to the system and of course because they're amendments although they're not law yet they've managed to get this far so um, they certainly have to be um, taken pretty seriously i know you've got something else to talk about in terms of um, new powers they've taken to change planning law so we'll, we'll come back to that a bit later but maybe i can turn to ben to talk about another 
quite radical amendment, which is this proposal to introduce so-called community land auctions. Could you start by just explaining what community land auctions are? It's actually quite hard to fathom out what they would be. But in essence, they're an idea that a local authority may benefit a bit more from when they allocate land for development through the plan-making process. So they can actually benefit financially. It would introduce a new stage, I guess, before in the plan-making process. A local authority could go out to some landowners and say, we'd like to take an option in your site, subject to it getting an allocation in the local plan. So in effect, the local authority would take on a sort of partial ownership or an interest in the sites. And then when it's got its allocation, when the site's got its allocation, it would then go out to developers and offer that site to them with the benefit of the allocation. And the local authority would then get paid as they sell it on to the developer, or sell the option on to the developer. So in essence, it sounds a great idea. And it gives councils a new, uh, they, they benefit financially from allocating land. You don't get the whole of the benefit from the, from the allocation going to the landowner. Correct. Of course, it must be understood that they're suggesting at this stage just pilots. How many? I don't know. Okay. And um, what do people think of the implications of this? I don't think I've heard any kind of criticism of it. That everyone thinks it's a great idea. But I think the questions they have are more about whether it will get used. The questions that are raised is, if I'm a landowner with a good site, why should I bother in selling an option to the local authority? What's the benefit for me? And councils will not be able to force a landowner to give them an option. There are big question marks about whether it will be used or not. And I suppose the question it raises is, if the idea of this is to sort of incentivise councils to allocate land for development and it's persuading a council to allocate a bit of land for development that it wouldn't have allocated without this financial incentive, then aren't councils going to be vulnerable to being accused of essentially being bought off by the development industry? And that's a really interesting question. And I think one point that's raised is, well, if I'm a landowner and I own a site, a bit of an iffy site, may or may not get an allocation, then, yeah, I might go out and offer an option to the council. And it it might be not a terribly good site, but the council may be persuaded because it, it will give it an allocation because of this option that it's taken. So it can actually rather skew the plan-making process. There are some concerns there, certainly. Okay, well, thanks for that, uh, Ben. And then the, the other amendment that you've been looking at is the requirement for water companies to upgrade sewage works in the hope that this will unblock the granting of planning permissions. Now, I think maybe first of all, I should ask you to explain how upgrading sewage works could unblock planning permissions. Yes, well, we've all had to learn about this rather quickly over the last few years. A complicated process. I don't think we, in the planning world, thought we'd get involved in sewage issues. But (laughs) that's what we've had to get up to speed with. And it all goes back to a European court ruling back in 2018. And it basically told Natural England that it could not approve developments that would add to nutrient pollution in protected habitats where the habitat's already deemed in an unfavourable condition. 
So basically, if any housing application came forward in one of these very sensitive areas, Natural England then objected. And it's calculated that around 100,000 homes in 74 planning authority areas are on hold or have got problems because of this issue of the nutrients that they would add to the water courses. And the house builders, as you can imagine, have been up in arms. And uh, at the moment, the fix that people have been trying to do is, is create these systems whereby you compensate for the extra pollution that a housing development might create by some kind of compensatory reduction of pollution elsewhere by taking a bit of land out of farming use or or so on and so forth. But this is saying that another way you could make compensatory improvements and maybe do it more significantly is by upgrading sewage works. Correct. There are two main sources of nutrient pollution in the rivers and watercourses is through agriculture and through the sewage works. So this particular amendment to the bill would put the onus on the water companies to reduce to the minimum level possible the nutrients that come out of their sewage works that go into these watercourses. Okay. And is this something that is going to be implemented through the planning system or is this just relevant to our audience because it's something that this requirement, which is being put on the water companies, should, to a certain extent, free up the development management process in some of these places? Oh, I think the idea is, whether it will be a successful, we'll probably come on to, the idea is, is that you will take it out of the planning consideration because it will be managed by the Environment Agency. They will impose uh, requirements on these water companies to do a lot better, reducing the nutrients coming out of their sewage works. So the whole issue of what you were talking about, mitigation, etc., should be substantially reduced. Okay. If this goes through and becomes law, what do people think the implications will be? I think in the long term, there will be a, it will simplify the planning process. Because at the moment, basically developers are having to enter into all these mitigation agreements, getting land out of agricultural use to persuade the council that their scheme won't have any impact on the nutrients. However, there's a good deal of frustration about the time scale. The deadline given to the water companies is April 2030, that's seven years' time. So up until then, they're still going to have to look at how they can mitigate the impact of their schemes. So this logjam may be eased in the long term, but in the short to medium term, we're not going to see a great deal of help. Okay, interesting. Well, thank you very much for that, Ben. I'm now going to turn to David Blackman. You've been looking at uh, street votes and and self-build, the amendments relating to those two. First of all, tell us a little bit about street votes and and then tell us about this amendment and how it would change the system. Well, first of all, street votes are an idea which were really um, given legs in a policy exchange report a couple of years ago. By the think tank. This government's favourite think tank. These were designed to give powers to residents to propose development on their street and then hold a vote on whether it ought to be given planning permission. There was already stuff about the level in the bill about street votes. So what, what has this amendment added? Well, really what this amendment does is all the bill had, had originally was just a thing saying what they call a placeholder clause, essentially saying the further details to be added later. 
So what this amendment does, it adds the detail about how street votes will work. What it says is a bit like a, a neighbourhood development order that a lot of readers will be familiar with, introduced by the 2011 uh, Localism Act. So it says this is a new type of order which will grant fast-track planning permission in a prescribed street area or any other development that it specifies. The amendment also provides for the appointment of an independent examiner to vet the proposed street vote and to make the street, the street vote orders on behalf of the Secretary of State, subject to their satisfaction that certain requirements such as on design are met. And it also provides for the Secretary of State to revoke or modify a street vote development order. Okay. So essentially, the process would be that the body that was promoting this would draw up something that looks like a, a similar to a neighbourhood development order, and that would be voted on by the residents. That's right, yeah. Okay. And briefly, what do people think are the likely implications? Well, I think the main feedback I had was there's quite a lot of scepticism out there that there's much appetite for this out there, because it will require residents being brought together. So, you know, it will require a sort of fairly cohesive set of proposals being brought together by neighbours who may not necessarily see eye to eye, of course, and as we all know, and who may not even know each other if the if street's large enough. So I think that that's the main scepticism. I think the other big concern is the extra work, and this is something which is voiced by the private sector as well as public sector people we spoke to. The main concern is the extra work this is going to involve for local authorities. Because when you think about it, you know, this will be a whole set, effectively a whole set of new mini planning policies developed for individual streets within the local authority, which is something they'll have to think about on top of their neighbourhood plans, their own local plans. So I think that's the main concern, that it's going to involve a lot more work for local authorities, and it's going to be difficult to get their heads around the sheer diversity of policy that will be operating in their areas. Fantastic. Okay. And then moving on to the uh, self-build amendment. I mean, again, just explain for what's meant by self-build, custom build, and what this amendment would do. Well, yes. Essentially, sort of self-building, custom-build are developments which are sort of you know, designed and brought forward by people rather than buying something off the shelf from a developer, which, of course, this was really sort of put on a, an official footing by the 2015 Self-Build and Custom House Building Act. What this amendment does, this is a much smaller amendment than the one I've just been talking about, about street votes. This is really a, a tweak to the existing system. It really just amends one clause from that 2015 Act. What it's really trying to do is clarify that earlier legislation by saying that local planning authorities give sufficient permissions for self and custom built housing on service plots to meet the demand for such development in their area over a given period. Okay. What do people think the implications are? Well, I think um, the self-build sector is pretty keen with this. It goes part of the way. What it's seeking to do is to um, resolve something called the Warwick problem, which was um, which is highlighted in a local government ombudsman's report into Warwick Council which basically enables councils to designate developments for self-build, whether they're actually bringing forward self-build plots or not, as long as there is potential for self-build on the land. So what this is doing is sort of much more tightly pinning councils down to specifying and bringing forward actual self-build plots, which people who are interested in self-build can use to build on. Thank you very much, David. I'm now going to just go back to Joey just to wrap things up because you've written a piece just before Christmas about one of the other amendments that 
it seemed that people you spoke to thought was actually potentially pretty radical. And these were this was to do with measures allowing repeal of, uh, of planning legislation. I think the key to understand here is potentially very radical, but the key is in the word potential. So this is an amendment that gives the Secretary of State power to repeal and revoke a whole swathes of uh, planning and associated legislation for the purpose of consolidation of existing planning law into essentially a more usable body of law. Okay. And what do people think the implications of that might be? I think the expressed purpose, as people understand it, is really purely administrative. Is We've got a whole mess of different pieces of legislation, some of which going back hundreds of, of years, some, some of which are Victorian, going beyond the 1940s Town and Country Planning Act and the 1990 Town and Country Planning Act, and that are bringing to bear on the planning rules that we all use on a day-to-day basis. And actually, the aim of the government is a is a reasonable one to actually bring these disparate pieces of legislation together in a much more usable form so that it, it becomes a much more sensible and usable piece of law. I think the concerns were raised not about that aim, but just simply really to the extent to which the Secretary of State ever, uh, you know, that there was a potentially wide-ranging power here being granted by this amendment and the risk that there was ever mission creep and that the Secretary of State ever ended up trying to use this power for anything beyond its express purpose of administrative kind of tidying up exercise, essentially. Okay. Thank you very much, Joey. Um, unfortunately, we've run out of time. Thank you very much to all three of you, to Ben and David as well, for uh, that sort of quick whistle-stop tour of the key changes being made by the amendments to the Leveling Up Bill. Just to stress, of course, none of these things are law as yet. Um, they, they now need to go to the House of Lords. So there'll be a bit more toing and froing, I'm sure. But they've all now reached quite an advanced stage in the process. There's more on all of those topics on planningresource.co.uk. As far as this podcast is concerned, don't forget to subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts and to get a daily bulletin of planning news, plus weekly analysis and specialist bulletins, subscribe at planningresource.co.uk. My thanks to producers Nav Powell and Hannah Holt from Haymarket Business Media and Daisy Chaku from Rethink, and thank you for listening.